All right. That's the great Eddie Harris with Listen Here. It's one of my favorite tunes, and uh, that's from his 1967 album, The Electrifying Eddie Harris. Today we are going to hear from the electrifying goddess Henry Watts. And who is he? Well, he's a listener, and he is about to make his presentation today. Yes, we are continuing with our presentations. We have about two more to go, and uh, we'll get to that in a minute. I just wanted to say hello, 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 Henry. Hello, you trees. Good to hear you. Um, you ready for the day? Uh, I'm ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So tell us a little bit, probably a sentence or two about yourself, and then we get to it. Well, uh, many people know me as, uh, especially on this uh, station, as Henry from Chicago. Uh, that is actually my middle name, and that is the middle name of my uh, great-grandfather, who was uh, named Henry, who was uh, born into slavery. Uh, as a child. Uh, but uh, I grew up in Chicago in a neighborhood called Morgan Park. Uh, I've lived in various uh, places uh, in the south side of Chicago and the Chicagoland area. So uh, hopefully I can uh, shed some light on the topic that I bring today. Okay, the topic is violence in Chicago. What is what it is? and what it isn't. And uh, our guide through the subject is Henry, and we'll listen to his presentation. You'll be able to ask questions when he's done, and hopefully we learn a little something about the nature of violence in Chicago. Take it away, Henry. All right. Thank you, Therese. Um, And thank you for inviting me uh, to do this. Um, when we talk about the demographics of Chicago, uh, we have to understand that uh, the demographics of Chicago, when you're talking about racial demographics, black people typically live on the south and west sides of Chicago, and the north side of Chicago is predominantly white. Now, that's important when you're talking about uh, what I consider Chicago, uh, one of the most segregated cities, if not the most segregated city in the nation. So I'll get into that. Uh, I'll touch on that in a little bit as well. But I want to talk about violence first, because the dictionary version of violence basically uh, says that any physical act of aggression with intent to hurt or damage. Now, I go kind of beyond that in this basic presentation because violence to me is just more than physical. It is mental, it is emotional, and it's also spiritual. But violence is also not just individualistic. It's also social violence, like economic and political. Uh, this is why poverty is such a violent act against uh, black people here, not just in Chicago, but all over the country and the world as well. And I also want to uh, touch upon the meaning of the term gang, because that's a, that's a huge issue that I have to discuss as well. But the media has often uh, given the word gang an ethnic negative connotation because with gang banging that's always related to young black males however when we talk about the history of gangs we also had white ethnic gangs in the early 20th century but these were not called gangs by the media uh during that time they were called social or athletic clubs clubs like the hamburg club the reagan's cult the Old Rose Athletic Club. These are all Irish ethnic gangs that were also involved in something that I'm going to talk about in one second. When we talk about the year 1919, that was a very instrumental year 
when you talk about racial violence. 1919 uh, saw a lot of racial violence, particularly white people attacking black people in their neighborhoods uh, in different cities. And Chicago is no different. Their attacks in 1919 started at the end of July and didn't subside until August of 1919. As a result of that, you had 38 deaths, 537 injuries, and 1,000 homeless black people as a result of that racial violence. You also, in that summer of 1919, had bombings and fire bombings to people's homes, and particularly black people's homes. Uh, And this is what starts a lot of the enforcement of segregation by white people in this particular city. Now, when you also talk about violence in this in the city, uh, it is to behoove people that also, too, that during the Prohibition era, you had lots of violence with mob uh, with Italian mobsters and Irish mobsters, most notably the St. Valentine's Day Massacre of 1929, when uh, then uh, Italian leader of the Chicago mob, Al Capone, killed seven Northside Irishmen uh, in the uh, in the North Side of, of Chicago. Well, when Prohibition ended in uh, 1933, uh, the Italian mob decided to to take a uh, to take a, a a look at a numbers ring that Chicago had. Now, what's interesting is that, you know, we all know about the numbers ring in Harlem, but there was actually a numbers ring here in Chicago as well, particularly in the Bronzeville area, uh, where there were a lot of black gangsters who basically had uh, the, the, the numbers racket. Well, when Prohibition ended in 1933, there was a violent takeover of the numbers ring in Chicago led by uh Sam Giancana, uh, he was the guy who took over after Al Capone uh, for the Chicago ring. So after that takeover happens, um, you have the, uh, uh, the Italian mob basically running, running the whole numbers racket here in Chicago after that. Now, I also want to get into the formation of uh, the black street gangs that happened in the 1940s. Now, what's interesting is they were basically organized as street protection organizations. And they were, uh, as black people started to migrate into the city of Chicago, they were, as I was saying, they were being under attack, they were being firebombed. So these street organizations had to form in order to uh, protect them against this white ethnic violence. Now, Um, Many of these uh, street organizations um, uh, were there to to just basically make sure that our neighborhoods were safe. However, as as time went on, these street organizations started to form alliances and started to kind of of group together these alliances. But then also, too, you started to get the influence of the old gangsters – from the from the numbers racket in Bronzeville that kind of influenced these young uh, uh, leaders of these street organizations. And then they started getting into racketeering. They started getting into all of the stuff within the underworld. Now, currently in Chicago, when you talk about the street gangs, there are two basic alliances uh, when, when, when you think about the street gangs in Chicago. There's the uh, there's the People Alliances, uh, which consist of the Black Peacestone Nations, the Vice Lords, the Four Corner Hustlers. These are gangs that mean, people who study gangs or hear about gangs in Chicago, you'll you'll hear about that. And then there's another alliance called the Folks Nations, who is uh, which is the Gangster Disciples and the Black Gangster Disciples. And uh, now these gangs started to form it, uh, in the early uh, '60s. And what was interesting is they were actually products of the Great Migration. So when we talk about the Great Migration, 
there were actually two great migrations that happened. The great migration that happened after World War One, and then you had the great migration that happened after World War Two. Many of many of the street organizations that joined the alliance of the uh, of the people's nations were from the first great migration and many of the second great migration people were of the uh, were of the folks nations so you had this tension going on between these two because the first great migration people were the ones who actually owned homes but then the second great migration people who came in after World War II were the ones who had who had been uh, uh, kind of like pushed into um, they were kind of pushed into uh, these developments or uh, projects uh, that I'll get into in a, in a couple of in a couple of minutes. When also you think about the social and economic impact of black residents in Chicago. Uh, you, you talk about redlining and restrictive covenants. And as I said before, these were basically enforced by bombings, uh, by violence, uh, by white people who, do, who did not want blacks to live in their areas. So they just generally kind of, uh, they just kind of, kind of forced them away in certain neighborhoods and forced them uh, by force by politics to just kind of live in undesirable areas where they were stuck in abject poverty. Now, in the 60s, you started to see many of the 50s and 60s, you start to see many of the people uh, of the second great migration moving into Chicago, being pushed into housing projects. Uh, Two of the main housing projects in Chicago, Cabrini Green and the Robert Taylor Homes. Now, Cabrini Green was originally built in the 30s for Italian people, and it was basically temporary living. Well, with the flood of black people that were coming from the South, the city had to find a way to kind of move these black people somewhere. So when the Italians started moving out of Cabrini Green, they started pushing them into uh, the uh, they started pushing black people into Cabrini Green housing. And so. When you start to see that, you start to see uh, the Chicago Housing Authorities building these other uh, uh, developments and, 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 and homes that house hundreds of thousands of people uh, in these high-rises. Another big high-rise or, or, or projects is the Robert Taylor Homes, which, uh, which, was built in the, which was built in the 1960s. So... As this goes on, you start to see this push of, of, of homes and housing uh, in these areas, but you also start to see abject poverty. You start to see underdevelopment. You start to see these people who get pushed into these homes, particularly these black people who are victims of these, you know, uh, of, of the violence of poverty, because obviously when you have this type of economic condition, you start to see violence, you start to see a lot of criminal activity happening in these areas. Now, we have to understand that this, this is all enforced by political and by, you know, by basically by social uh, violence that has been inflicted on uh, by the white residents here in Chicago. Now, it is also important to understand the people who have enforced this, which is the police. And we cannot go on to talk about Chicago violence without speaking about police violence. Now, when you talk about police violence, you can start as early as the 60s, where policemen were kind of uh, doing these shootouts with many civil rights organizations that were here, or not shootouts, but basically uh, um, physical violence against uh, certain civil rights and grassroots organizations that that were here in Chicago. But then when you start seeing the Black Panthers come around uh, in the late 60s, 
police were actually having these unprovoked shootouts with these organizations. Uh, one in particular, you had uh, the, the murder of uh, Fred Hampton and Mark Clark on uh, December 4th, 1969. Uh, but then also, too, there's various areas of police corruption that has affected the lives of many black residents uh, in the city. When you're talking about the Marquette 10, a group of cops that were on the west side who were protecting a heroin ring, uh, you had the John Burge uh, Chicago police torture, which many, if not all, of his victims who were tortured in his reign uh, in the 80s and 90s uh, were black people. And then you had the Home and Square torture site, which was actually recently discovered in 2015. But what was so interesting was uh, it got a lot of flack for it because, not because it, it wasn't true, but the fact of the matter is, is that many people say that the Chicago police have a lot of these sites. Now, just to explain these torture sites, this Home and Square facility was a, it was an old building owned by the Sears Roebuck uh, uh, Corporation on the west side. And what the Chicago police did was they used this site as an off-the-book site to bring in suspects to kind of torture them uh, to, into confessions. But from my understanding, there are a lot of sites around Chicago that are like that. So you have that, and you have the Laquan McDonald murder, which is not really unique in its sense because of the fact that many police shootings have taken place in the city. Uh, it just happened that the Laquan McDonald uh, shooting was the first one to be filmed. Uh, but also, too, when you talk about police violence, you also have to talk about the politics behind police violence and also um, what happens with police work. Because as the police work, uh, police work is actually part of this violent episode uh, against, against black people uh, here in Chicago. Because when you think about the victims of Chicago violence, you think about most of the victims being black people. Now, for, for many who understand clearance rates, clearance rates are basically when cases are being solved and people are being arrested. Now, the clearance rate for the, na the national average for clearance rates is about 60% of the cases. Chicago has been under 50% for the last 10 years, if not more, if, if, if I'm not mistaken. But it's interesting because of the fact that there have been many excuses from City Hall about how they don't have this and how they don't have that. But yet we find all these people being shot and nobody's being arrested. We find all these people being killed and nobody's being arrested. So this also contributes to the violence that is done here in Chicago. Now, when we talk about the 90s, because this was actually a very important time when dealing with Chicago violence, the 90s actually saw statistically a lot of homicide. Matter of fact, between 1990 and 1995, Chicago averaged about 900 homicides uh, for, uh, for each respective year. So you had 900 homicides between uh, every year between 1990 and 1995. Now that's a significant number considering that we only reached the 900 mark probably once in the last 20 years. And people kind of ask me, well, why is that? Why did, why did Chicago violence did not get that much attention back then when there were more deaths and homicides during that time? Well, there's probably two reasons. Number one, during the 90s, most of the nation was probably focused more on L.A. because the gang wars in L.A. were still hot and it was still going on during that time. And secondly... With the numbers in Chicago, uh, the homicides that were in Chicago, there were very few innocent casualties in, during that time. Not to say that there wasn't, but there were very few considering to what's happening now. And I think there was more benign neglect when you talk about the casualties because people were like, well, they deserved it, so you know, we really don't care about 
you know, if these gangbangers get shot or not. So this is probably why um, the numbers didn't get as much attention as it should have. But what's also interesting is there was a very important case that happened in 1994. There was a young boy named Robert Sanford. They called him Yummy. He was part of a faction or a gang, uh, a street gang called the Black Disciples. And he shot at a rival gang and accidentally hit and killed a young girl named uh, Savan Dean. Now, this was important because back in those days, and this is just from my experiences of knowing people who are in gangs, talking to some gang leaders, back in those days, it was uncommon and rare for a person that young to be shooters uh, on the street. Well, Robert Staniford basically was an 11-year-old who had a long history of, uh, he had a long violent record. He was a foster children who went from foster care to foster care. He basically was in and out of the, of the, uh, of the juvenile system. And he became part of the street organization and basically did an order that he wasn't supposed to do and accidentally shot a young girl. Now, what was interesting was there was a nation, there wasn't just a citywide manhunt on this young, this young boy. There was a nationwide manhunt. I remember seeing his face on a Channel 7 national news during that time uh, of, of Robert Sanford uh, because of the fact that he killed this young, uh, he, he, cooked, he killed this young girl. But what, what ended up happening was about three weeks later, they found his body in a, uh, in a Vidoc on 83rd Street, which was like about two miles from where I was living at. And he was killed execution style. Now, what was also important about that was in September of that year, 1994, his face shows up on the cover of Time magazine. And it's ironic that he becomes the face of violence and especially young black men being violent uh, perpetrators. But then what's also important, too, is, is that later on, that year, 1994, the crime bill gets signed. Thank you, Joe Biden, for that. And I, I, I kind of think that this was no coincidence between Robert Sanford's face getting plastered on a national news magazine and national media, and then the crime bill getting passed that same year. So what also happened in the 90s was the federal government uh, did an investigation on a lot of the gang leaders that were in Chicago who were running drugs, trafficking drugs, and, and such. Now, what's, what's interesting is between 1995 and 1997, they rounded up a lot of the leaders and you know, put them in federal cases and put them in federal jail. Okay, that's good. However, during that time of rounding up the leaders, they didn't get rid of the drugs, they didn't get rid of the weapons, and they didn't get rid of the foot soldiers that were part of these street gangs. So what ends up happening was the foot soldiers who still remain on the streets, they see the guns, they see the drugs, and they say, hey, Maybe we can do something with it. But now, a neighborhood that used to have two gangs now has ten gangs, all with different agendas, all with different you know, reasons on why they should control the drug trade. And now the violence, which was kind of quelled a little bit when activists and sometimes ministers would call for a ceasefire on the weekends, that's not happening because of the fact that now you have war gangs infiltrating these neighborhoods. But when we talk about the impact of poverty in these areas and the concentration of poverty in certain neighborhoods and where crime is very prevalent in these areas, now you start to see about the turn of the century, you start to see CHA, the Chicago Housing Authority, 
starting to tear down a lot of these projects that had all of these crime, you know, had all of these areas of crime. And it starts with Cabrini Green. And then it starts with the Robert Taylor homes. They closed the, the Robert Taylor homes. I think they demolished the last building in 2007 and could bring the green in 2011. Now, they promised these residents, you know, uh, uh, that they could come back because what, what their plan was was to tear down the housing project and develop what they call affordable housing. Many of these residents, if not any of them, did not come back to these neighborhoods because this was part of the gentrification plan. And so they were pushed into areas where rival gangs lived at, and then now they put these families in a more conspicuous situation because of the fact that these are areas, high concentrated poverty areas, where there's no development, there's bad schools, and there's food deserts there. So now they're pushing these people out into these areas, bringing more crime, bringing, and I'm not saying the residents are bringing more crime, but now causing more crime, more economic deprivation, more poverty, and not doing anything for these citizens. And these citizens are kind of like, you know, pulling up their hands like, what are we going to do? So you also look at the 50 school closings that happened in 2013, which put a lot of the students whose schools been closed in very much risk because now they have to go to these neighborhoods where shootings are very prevalent. And now you also have the media jumping all on this and you have people who are taking advantage of this uh, because of the fact that, you know, it helps their profile or whatever. So you start to hear the term Chirac which was actually monikered by a, a Chicago local rapper named King Louie, you know, kind of comparing the war torn Iraq to, you know, to Chicago, uh, even though, you know, we don't have tanks and missiles, uh, you know, bombing our areas. But, you know, they want to compare us to, you know, Iraq. Um, you also have the, 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 the birth of what they call drill music here, which is basically a, 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 a refined and a, and a repackaged version of gangster rap. Now, being a child of the 80s and early 90s, uh, I used to listen to gangster rap, but I also knew that most, most of these artists who did gangster rap were not really gangsters. With drill music, most of these people are actually on social media talking about doing shootings and actually performing them. And this is basically a product of what our schools, which have been dilapidated, which have been closed, which have been which have kicked out a lot of these students who are in these streets doing these hip hop albums and doing drill music and performing these acts that, you know, result in Chicago violence. And then you have to look at the pandemic, which happened, uh, you know, for the last two years and which forced schools to close down for a year. But many of these students have dropped out. Many of these students have joined, you know, particular street gangs. And also, too, from my understanding, uh, there, is, there was actual car-stealing rings that basically, uh, that basically increased the level of carjacking that was happening over the last two years. So these students and some of these carjackers, who are as young as 12 years old, joined these rings, joined these, uh, 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 these particular street, you know, gang-level organizations because of the fact that the schools basically just kind of, like, lost them and, and, and they kind of fell off. Not only that, they live in areas where families are not promoted, poverty is prevalent, and politicians and sometimes even the residents are very kind of blase about, you know, their, their existence. And, and so this is what promotes the violence that happens in the city. So in the end, I, 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 I take on this subject because of the fact that Chicago violence has been associated with black on black violence, which is a, which is a, which is a, another negative connotation when you talk about violence. And 
many politicians and pundits have leveraged that conversation of black on black violence by pointing to Chicago and saying, hey, look at the violence in Chicago. Uh, most recently, you, you know, you had President Donald Trump, you know, threatening to send federal agents into the city to kind of quell the violence because of the quote unquote black on black violence. And you also have uh, we have a mayoral election that's coming up next year. And the number one topic with a lot of the candidates is safety. Not, you know, not policing. Well, not policing, but not a uh, not econ- not economic growth, uh, not improving schools. But every one of them's number one uh, talking point is safety. And so. This is being leveraged to a detriment because of the fact that Chicago is getting a bad name (coughs) for this reputation, but it's not really looking at the real issues that are happening here in Chicago because of the fact that when many people think about Chicago violence, you you think about savage young black males who are just shooting each other for no reason. And this is not the case. So... When Chicago violence has been misinterpreted and wrongfully celebrated and racialized, the reality of it is it's just a, a symptom of racial inequality. So as I conclude, Chicago is not specifically the murder capital of the country. Because when you talk about murder per capita, it ranks ninth, and actually Chicago actually ranks 24th in violent crime. So what is Chicago violence? Chicago violence is a public health issue. What Chicago violence is not is black-on-black violence. What is Chicago violence? It's rooted in political and, and social history. What it is not is not a recent phenomenon. What is Chicago violence? It's a part of a a racist social structure. And what Chicago violence is not, it's not going to be solved by a one-button solution. I was prompted also to do this topic because I myself have been asked to be on panels, discussions. I have witnessed panels and discussions on gun violence here in the city. And it's like all of the conversations sound the same, but yet it gets worse and worse with the actual violence here in the city. So everybody has this one-button solution that we just need to fix this and we need to fix that, and then the violence goes away. No, this is a historical thing that has gone on, and it is systematic. And we need to find a way to systematically bring our people together in the city to stop this violence to quell this violence so we can live safely as as a people in the city. You know, it doesn't improve by just arresting everybody because at that point, are you doing this feeding into the, um, into the mass incarceration system? And what's going to happening is you're going to find younger and younger people who are going to take the place of these perpetrators in these streets, just like with the drug trade. And so with the drug trade, people used to arrest the corner, you know, the corner drug dealer. But about an hour later, another drug dealer shows up because no one is tackling the problem. They are attacking the symptoms of this problem. And I think if we can clearly see what is happening here in Chicago and many other cities that are like this, we can probably tackle this issue a little better than we are today. And so that is my time, and I thank you. Thank you very much. We'll take this break and come back to your questions at 888-874-4888. Again, our guest is a listener uh, participating in this uh, presentation program. And uh, I hope you have some questions ready when we come back right after this. You're listening to Lead Stories on PRN.FM, 
And we have a special presentation today uh, on violence, Chicago violence specifically, what it is and what it isn't. Our presenter is also a listener, and you probably have heard his name uh, calling in several times on different programs. And it is a pleasure to have him today hosting this program uh, and sharing with us a unique perspective on crime in Chicago. 888-874-4888 is the number to call. 888-874-4888. Okay. We have Jeremiah first. He's up from New York. Well, first of all, thank you, Henry. Um, really outstanding presentation, very insightful. Um, I've always been very fascinated by Chicago. I've been there a few times, but um, was always very curious about the mechanisms and just the culture and the whole thing that's going on over there. Um, my question is, first of all, what is the current level of violence in Chicago? Because I remember it seemed like a few years ago, I mean, there was like absurd levels of, of homicide going on there. Like it, it seemed like every weekend there was, you know, barbecues and even funerals and like outdoor events where these bloodbaths were happening. So my question is, first of all, what is the current level of violence in Chicago? Well, thank you, Jeremiah, for that uh, question. Um, Talking about the current level of violence, uh, there, there's a there's a way that you have to look at it when you talk about uh, the numbers, the raw numbers, and what type of violence happens here in Chicago. Because uh, in my presentation, I talked about the levels of homicides when you look at statistics was the highest in the 90s than than, than it ever has been in Chicago history when you're keeping track of it. But I think now you're starting to see uh, the numbers of innocent casualties uh, being higher than before. So when the media reports this, you know, they're basically reporting the, the casualties of innocent people who are caught up in these, you know, in these gunfires uh, on the streets. Now, what's also interesting is, and this is something that I wanted to include as well, Violence is starting to reach out on the north side as well, which has been a concern for people. But when was violence was contained, when, when violence was contained on the south and west sides, it was not that much of an issue. But now that homicides are happening on the north side, carjackings are happening downtown in Chicago. Now all of a sudden, it becomes an issue, and I think people know why. <laughs> It is now come to you know it's come to people's attention now. Okay, thank you, thanks, Jeremiah, for your question, Mohammed from New York. You're on the air. Good afternoon, Utrice, and good afternoon, afternoon. Henry. Uh, Henry, I would like to say this: your presentation was very well organized, structured, and presented in a very professional way. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. That's it? That's it. Oh, I thought you had a question. <laughs> no, just a comment. Okay. All right, thank you. Mr. C from New Jersey, you're on the air at 888-874-4888. Hello, you and Henry. Hello. Hello. Hi. I have a... Uh, formulated a detailed jobs plan that will solve all the problems. Well, almost all the problems. All right, and, you have to address the question as it relates to the presentation. Hmm. It, it's not the uh, ideal time to present your individual project and plan. Do you have a question relating to the lecture? Well, the question was how to solve that issue, and it can't be solved with one 
one button, uh, as Henry said. And I have, uh, I can solve it with one button. I have a, well, uh, a copy. We're going to have to move on because we're looking for questions specifically relating to his presentation in order to maximize the relevance of his presentation and people may want to ask questions in addition well, to what it, he presented. It is very relevant to solve this issue. No, but we uh, cannot, what I'm saying is we cannot take your proposal now in the, as a question. It is not a question. You have a proposal that cannot be presented right now. We are entertaining questions specifically okay. relating okay i have a I have a question. How can I propose okay. my proposal How can you see I you're still you, you're not listening and you continue despite the fact that I've said it now four okay, okay, times please. all right okay I am four times and it is not a, the appropriate time uh to ask the question because we are looking for people interested in getting more information based on the presentation itself. Thank you. Janet from New Jersey, you're on the air. Hello, Beatrice uh, and also Henry. Hello. I was listening to this program, which is very, very detailed. I just wanted to ask Henry, uh, is he aware of the book called Kings, written by Nathan Thomas Thompson? Uh, are you talking about the the one about the policy king? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I read that book quite some time ago, and everything that you're saying is exactly true. And the thing it is is that what I'm wondering is uh, with all of the history about the gangs that have taken place, and every major city uh, has this problem, the thing it is is that I'm wondering why the ownership – of where the money is actually being made by these poor and struggling people. Why aren't any of the established institutions going after the ownership who facilitate these crimes taking place and the money exchanges that are being done? Uh, that's a good question. But you also have to look at some of the money that has been made with these, uh, 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 whether it be underground and whether it would be with federal money. Because uh, one thing that I, that, that I wanted to talk about and I thought it would be too, too much in my presentation was the federal money that came in in the 60s that went towards these, you know, street organizations as they call them. But it was basically uh, part of the money that was uh, that was used for the uh, the war on poverty. I think it was Lyndon Baines Johnson at that time, and so this actually caused a, a huge divide as well when you're talking about monies given to these groups. And so the whole thing is, is that capitalism causes these divisions. When you're talking about the the spirit of capitalism, and you talk about poverty, because when I talk about poverty as violence against a group of people, they deprive these people of the, the, the basic necessities, but then they also give these people more of an interest of getting more than what they're supposed to get. And they, they, they give them the spirit of uh, trying to obtain the, 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 the American dream by any means necessary, even if it means, you know, selling drugs to your neighbors, selling drugs to, you know, people that you love. And so I guess the, the question about going after these institutions is that these institutions are protected. And, you know, uh, when you're talking about being protected, you're talking about being protected politically, protected streetwise. And so um, 
it's kind of hard to go after these institutions when they're when they're being protected. Well, you know, I I have another question because this comes to mind. We didn't have the level of technology, and we didn't have the level of young people that we have that are very astute with this technology. And I think with most situations, wouldn't you think that even though you you may not be able to tackle these systems? that you are better equipped to expose these systems so that there's a lot more knowledge at the end of saying, look, this is where the ultimate money chain is winding up with these situations. And the level of exposure would make it possible for people to no longer crawl under a rock or turn a blind eye once these things are exposed. And once you've sort of... uh, what they call uh, destroy something from within, you can actually start to move in directions of making things happen in a more positive way. Yeah, I mean, that, that, I mean it, it sounds nice in theory, but when you have the powerful political machine called the Democratic Party, uh, it gets kind of convoluted when you try to bring this information out there because obviously uh, when people who are, you know, working on the grassroots level, try to bring this out, you know, they are labeled as extremists. They're labeled as people that don't know much. There are people that are just, you know, they're they're just ostracized. And so that's another fight that we have to do when we're talking about, you know, fighting the Democratic Party here in in this city. Thank you very much for your question, Janet. 888-874-4888. 888-874-4888. Henry Watts concluded his presentation and is taking questions at 888-874-4888. Brother Dave, you're on the air. Brother Dave, you're on the air. Okay. Something happened there. We're not hearing you, Brother Dave. Okay. Call in again at 888-874-4888 so that you can ask your question. I wanted to ask you, Henry, uh, about possible future progress is it is it is it a good idea to hold out for progress in tackling and making some inroads in solving this problem well i guess from from my perspective working with grassroots organizations in chicago we do see a level of progress in, in some areas. Um, other areas in Chicago are kind of hard to get into because those are the areas that many developers are, are, are investing their money in. And unfortunately, with a lot of these grassroots organizations, they don't, they don't have the money to uh, tackle or go up against uh, those million dollar corporations and also city hall as well. So we have to do the best we could to, you know, kind of galvanize the residents of that area. Because one of the things that, that, that some organizations are fighting against is gentrification and the, uh, and the housing that is going on in the city is just absolutely ridiculous. When we're talking about homes that are, you know, uh, realistically valued, at you know maybe two hundred thousand are being sold on the market for like seven hundred eight hundred thousand, and they're you know they're literally buying up these homes uh, from people who are giving them a nice little fat check uh, of, of 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 you know doubling their 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 uh, their worth on their homes, but then they don't have nowhere to move because uh, the home the, the the market on homes is so bad right now you. You, you could you could barely find somebody who will sell you something. So that's that's an issue right now that that you know we're trying to tackle uh, one you know on a on a one by one basis. Hmm. 
Thank you. Well, Henry, are you hopeful? You've um, painted us a, a mixed bag today. Uh, you gave us the history, and you also bring us up to date on what is happening now. What is your sense? Is it more positive than, you know, still a lot, too much work to be done? It's positive, and at the same time, there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, I am. Uh, I have worked with uh, organizations. I've, I've actually. I'm actually working with this group right now who do. Who does. Uh, who does. Uh, uh, they do a. Uh, what do they call it? They do kind of like a street level patrol uh, of a particular neighborhood in Chicago, which uh, has a lot of crime and a lot of violence. Now, this is not a neighbor. You know, this is not your typical neighborhood watch where. You know, we have armed guards and stuff like that. This is a group of, of, of black men who are just walking the streets as a unit and just basically unarmed as well, just to, just to put that into perspective, because many people thought that they were armed, <laughs> but they're not. And just basically going out into the neighborhoods during the daytime, during the nighttime, talking to people, making sure, you know, people are safe. And so I, I see these organizations coming out. Um, but they're only in like maybe one or two neighborhoods and they need, we need to expand out to different neighborhoods. Hmm. Well, I want to thank you for bringing us this presentation today. I want to echo the sentiments of a couple of callers who can tell that you put a lot into it and you did some very heavy research. I'm glad that you did because it authenticates the what you are saying. It authenticates also um, that this what this didn't crop up yesterday. This problem didn't just happen yesterday. And uh, I want to thank you. It was a good presentation, and uh, let's see if we could do another one again. Well, well, thank you tomorrow. Thank you, Retreat. Tomorrow. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, thank, thank you, Retreat, for letting me uh, talk on this topic. And, it, and if anybody wants to expand on it and ask me questions beyond this point, I, I'll be willing to uh, also answer it uh, even beyond today. Okay. Thank you very much. Stay tuned right here at prn.fm. And thanks for listening. Bye-bye.